Well, hello. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hello, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you for giving the show a download, a listen, a view, wherever it is that you're hearing this, seeing this. We do ever so much. Greatly appreciate it. Hope that you get a lot out of the next hour. Hopefully, we're going to educate and inspire. You know, it has been a big week, a very big week here at the Physicians Committee because we were recognized as one of China's 10 biggest health influencers of 2018 for the entire country. You know, we've touched on it a little bit here on the show in the past. Our own Dr. Zhao Zhu, he is a celebrity over in China in his own right. You know, he leads this cross-country bicycle caravan, this grassroots effort teaching residents about the research that shows the effect of a plant-based diet on improving health and combating disease. And among those diseases, of course, we're talking about diabetes. Because what Dr. Ju points to is a rise in meat consumption over there. He blames that for the escalation in diet-related disease. Check out this statistic, okay? Studies there show that meat consumption has risen by a staggering 700% over the past three decades. 700%. Mind-bogglingly large number. But another part of our initiative is also digital. It's our 21-day vegan kickstart program. You've heard me talk recently about our app that we just relaunched. Well, it's more than just an app. It's, it's a full-on program. And we also offer that program in Mandarin. And so it is truly humbling to be recognized, all of those efforts, and know that the Physicians Committee is truly making such a big difference in China, now recognized as one of the 10 biggest health fluencers in that country. So congratulations to all parties involved. Amazing, extraordinary honor. Here on the show, we talk a lot about health and nutrition, what to eat, what not to eat, how specific foods help fuel the body. But today, we're also going to turn our attention to the health of animals. And we're going to be talking about animal welfare. And so as we continue our string of extraordinary celebrity guests, our featured interview this week is with a megastar among the younger generations. Simply put, the kids love him. Okay, he is a star of TV and film. He is a budding musician. And quite frankly, this young man is a guy he's going to change the world. Aiden Gallagher is his name, star of Nickelodeon, as well as the upcoming series on Netflix, The Umbrella Academy. Plus, he has an EP coming out. The musician part of him, he has an EP coming out as well. But what is truly impressive about the young Mr. Gallagher is that he is the youngest Goodwill ambassador ever to be appointed by the United Nations, right? Aiden is just 15 years old, but he already has his act together way more, way so much more than most adults, not even close. It, it's amazing to me how he has been drawn to this plant-based diet at such a young age because of the research that he did himself. He did this research himself about the effect of meat consumption on the environment and how animals in that industry are treated. Such a young man when he started this journey. Just incredible. And of course, because Aiden is a rocker, 
we also talked about his musical influences, and I put on my old classic rock DJ hat. I love it when I get the opportunity to do that. So I, I, I dusted off my old DJ hat, and I took it back old school with him. Used to work at a classic rock radio station. And I think, I think this was the first time I ever made a Jim Croce reference on this show. And if you're too young to know who Jim Croce is, I guarantee that you know that song, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. Guarantee it. And if you don't, Google it. You'll enjoy it. Stream it on Spotify. Whatever. Uh, but you know what? Aiden, the cool thing about Aiden is, as young as he was, right there with me. So we chatted about music and what his go-to foods are on the set and in the studio. And what really kind of surprised me was... What he told me, he said that a lot of the cast and crew on projects that he's involved in, they're vegan as well. So keeping it plant-based on set and in the studio, not really that big of a deal for him. He's got it kind of easy. Progressive, that guy. Progressive. Um, aside from being so active at a young age, uh, I was really impressed with how in tune he is with his body in terms of how he felt after he eliminated meat and dairy from his diet. Barely a teenager, but he could already tell such an enormous difference. So I really think, I really think that you're going to get a lot out of that interview. I think that you're going to like that guy. My other guest this week is the Vice President of Research Policy here at the Physicians Committee, Christy Sullivan. And she brought with her a little gizmo that isn't much bigger than your index finger. All right, take time, look down at your index finger, left or right, doesn't matter. That's the size of this gizmo. But this gizmo, it has the potential to improve the lives of thousands of animals. Remove them from the drug testing procedures used by Big Pharma. And this little gizmo will ultimately help determine how new drugs are brought to market and how quickly they're brought to market. All right, this is going to really revolutionize a lot of things in the healthcare industry. It's called organ on a chip. You may have heard about it recently. Each one of these chips can be created to replicate how human organs will react to certain types of drugs. And as a matter of fact, there was recently a pretty big write-up about this. Um, saw that a couple of biotech companies are combining artificial intelligence and heart on a chip technology as they seek a cure for heart disease. So how does this all work? How does this little index finger size gizmo work? Christy and I, we're going to get into all of that, all of it. But first, my conversation with actor, singer, young influencer, Aiden Gallagher. Next up on the exam room here by the Physicians Committee is a gentleman who is a mover, a shaker, an up-and-comer, and if you don't know his name today, by golly, you're going to know it, and <laughs> really, by the end of this interview, I mean, this is somebody that you need to know. He's the star of Nickelodeon's Nicky, Ricky, Dicky, and Dawn, and the upcoming Netflix series, The Umbrella Academy, and here's the cool fact about Mr. Aiden Gallagher. Mr. Gallagher, you are also the youngest goodwill ambassador ever appointed by the United Nations. That's not bad for your tender age, my friend. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, it's absolutely my pleasure. And you, in addition to being this talented musician and this actor and this activist, you you are a big-time believer in the plant-based diet. And, and you're so young. How old are you now? 
15. Okay. When is it that you first learned about plant-based diets? I think it's been going for like three years or so now, maybe more than that. I, the first thing that really inspired me was this hashtag called Meatless Mondays. And at the time, I was really getting into uh, environmental advocation, and I was learning all this new information, and I came across this hashtag. It was really interesting because I didn't realize how much of it impact my diet would actually have on the world around me. So I did a bit more research and I found out that more than half of climate change is actually caused by the animal agriculture business. So you switch to an electric car, you do whatever you want to do to cut down CO2 emissions and you're still contributing to more than half of climate change. So it was this really surreal experience where I felt really moved by it and I wanted to at least try it. So it became a bet between me and my family, and eventually that transitioned into full-on veganism, and that's been going for several years now. Man, that's a that's a heavy topic to be covering. With so fifteen, three years ago, you would have been twelve. That's pretty heavy for a twelve-year-old yeah. man. I mean, I'm curious. Were, were, were you what what circle of friends were you running in? I mean, were you guys all environmental advocates? Uh, no, but I. I grew up in LA surfing, so I've always been connected to nature and I've always cared about it. What sort of started this whole environmental advocacy for me was I wanted to go surfing on a day that it rained. And my dad said that I couldn't because you could risk getting an infection because all of the pollutants from land washing to our seas. And that one fact was very intriguing to me and it wasn't something that I ever learned in schools, it wasn't common knowledge to any of my circle of friends, so I just Googled it. And eventually I got involved with local uh, waterkeeper alliance and all of these different oceanic protection uh, organizations. And more I got involved, more I learned, coinciding with this, I got this Nickelodeon show where I amassed this following on Instagram. So I had all this new information that was open to me and I had to share it. So I kind of felt this obligation to at least try and educate my, uh, I, I guess you could say circle friends, but really my demographic on this information is really not being at school. So I mean, if you talk to what you said, I was like, tw- I was probably 12 bit around there. A 12 year old does not know about all of these. They, they do not know that more than half of climate change is caused by the animal agriculture business. Someone your age would probably be shocked about that. Obviously, you're more integrated in this whole advocacy uh, lifestyle, but it's just not common knowledge. Someone my age. Way to make me feel old, Aiden. <laughs> Uh, it's funny though you're talking about that memory at at 12 and and your father telling you you can't go surf that day because of the rain and you know it it reminds me of growing up and um, my mom worked for the Cousteau Society until I was about 12 years old and some of my youngest memories are going and cleaning up beaches and planting trees and actually um, you know having the opportunity to meet Jacques Cousteau before he passed and you know those are things that if you get involved in those kind of causes at a young age, they stick with you for a lifetime. So I can sit here today at 36 
and I, I can guarantee you that when you're 36, that you're still going to be on this path and, and, and those memories are still going to be with you and they're going to be as vivid as the day that they actually occurred. I hope so, because it's definitely an inspiring memory for me. Talk to me a little bit about your experience working with the Racing Extinction Challenge. What is that? So the Racing Extinction Challenge is to try and educate the public about all of these animals going extinct. And it's based on this documentary that was also another big turning point for me as far as advocacy goes. I watched this documentary a few years back, and all this new information was so shocking. And like I said before, none of this is really common knowledge. You show your friends this documentary, and they don't know anything about it. They don't know that most of the species are going extinct, that we're in the sixth mass extinction. So it's mostly just trying to get people aware of it, and people are not aware of it. So that's what it is. Right on, man. And here's the thing that I like about you, okay? Are you, are you familiar with the term renaissance man? Do you know what that means? It sounds familiar, but I don't, I don't really know what you mean, no. It means that basically you are not one thing. You, you are many things, and you are good at a lot of them. So you are, you are an advocate, you are an actor, you are a musician, you are a renaissance man. And so I want to switch gears, I want to pivot here a little bit. I want to ask you about your music, because a, a little birdie, Aiden, told okay. me that, that you're working on a new EP called Blue Neon, true? Yes. For me, music has always spoke to me. And in recent years, I began writing a lot. So we were up shooting the series in Toronto, and I, I couldn't bring all my music gear that I had at home, so it was just me and a guitar. And, you know, you'd come back after a late day at work, and you'd have the sunset going on, and I had this window, and I'd just sit down, and I'd play for hours and hours. And you have a lot of time to think and to write, and you end up getting some really pure stuff. So for me... I amassed all these songs that I wrote up there, and at the same time, I was glorying my knowledge on this doc called Logic. So it means that I can actually produce my music and make it into an MP3 that I can put on iTunes and that I can share. And For me, it's a very new experience. I'm very excited about it. And, oh no, I just love music. No oh, man, that's that's really cool, and uh, yeah, I have a background as a as a music radio DJ. That's kind of how I got my start in this uh, yep. wacky wild business. Um, and uh, you know, my big break came at a classic rock station. Do you dip into classic rock, or what are what are your musical influences? So I'm constantly going through new music, getting new inspiration. But classic rock was definitely an early influence of mine. Right on. These days, I go more towards the songwriting aspect of like Ed Sheeran, John Mayer, just, you know, try and get the quality of the lyrics, the quality of the arrangement really good and very just precise and honest. And I kind of go with a modern production feel to it, and I think I get a nice blend. All right, man. Well, here's my suggestions for you. If you if you like Sheeran and you, and you like Mayer, uh, obviously I would look into Eric Clapton, but I would also go and I would listen to Jim Croce 
and I would listen to Van Morrison. Those are two of the bigger names that are out there that I think that, you know, those those guys kind of laid the groundwork for your modern artists like that. So if, you, if you're not really too familiar with those guys yet, give them give them a listen. I'd be real curious to know what your thoughts are. Have you heard any of those guys before? I've definitely heard them. I think I've heard one or two songs, but I haven't gone through that phase yet. I can't say I don't like any type of music. Like for a long time, uh, Western just wasn't for me. But <laughs> then one of my art favorite artists put out a good uh, a good country album, and I was like, you know what, this really speaks to me. So I'd be really excited to that out. There, there is a difference between Western and country. And country is is oh. not it's it's <laughs> it's not what it used to be, man. I will tell you that right now. I don't really look at the genre. I kind of just if a song connects with me, whether it be on a sonic level, where I just love the arrangement and it makes me feel something or it brings back a memory, or the lyrics remind me of something or I can connect or relate to it. If it speaks to me, if I truly love it then I will obsess over it. I will buy that album. I'll listen to every word and I'll figure out why I feel that. And I try and get that. And I try and get at least a millimeter of that energy and that creativity that that artist was able to try and bring that into my music. And hopefully when you guys move it, you will same effect. Question for you, man. Uh, with great inspiration and, 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 and creativity takes a lot of energy, man. So you got to keep fueled uh, when you're jamming out, man. What are, what are some of your go-to foods when you're in the studio or just sitting in your room trying to crank out lyrics and, and work on some chords? Well, generally, I like to, especially when I'm in the studio, I like to take a lunch break because I find that you get fresh ears when you come back to music. Like I'll record something on one day that I thought was really cool. And then I'd come back the next day and I realized it's pretty much just a good idea, but it's not really right for the song. So I generally like to take a break. I don't really eat in, in the studio, right but on. as far as some of my favorite vegan foods, veggie grills, a big one, uh, from has some great vegan restaurants. If you guys ever get the chance to go there, one of the best places I've ever eaten is this place called Hogtown Vegan. But if I'm not there, I'll get some vegan sushi. I'll go to Veggie Grill. I might make some rice and beans at the house. You can get vegan pokey. There are tons of substitutes. And I see more and more vegan restaurants popping up around where I live. And for me, it's very exciting. And it definitely makes life easier. Yeah, and you know, uh, you you are lucky to be living where you are out there in L.A. Um, I was just out there a month ago and was just absolutely blown away by all of the vegan options there. You know, D.C. We're making you know quite a bit of progress, but you guys you guys are just running circles around us out there. Yeah, I got really lucky. No doubt. <laughs> um, same philosophy uh, when you're on set uh, at, a, at a shoot, you know, do, do you like to take the, the lunch breaks there? Or is it, a, you know, quick grab and go at catering at that point? I've been pretty lucky so far. The vegan caterers, and they are vegan caterers, three out of the four dishes would always be vegan or on the set that I worked on. And for me, that's, Unreal. I mean, that doesn't happen on a set. So, as far as my work with the Umbrella Academy goes, that was a blessing. But 
if I can't get that, I'll generally order something that'll come by lunchtime. I'll bring something from home. But I'm generally all right. Like, I can go to a steak restaurant and get green beans. I can adapt and order around stuff. That's the sign of a true vegan, my friend, to make it work wherever you go. I'm curious, were, were you the only uh, vegan uh, on, on that set? Or, I mean, if you were bringing vegan catering, I would no, imagine no, that there, there would have been plenty. Few. There are quite a few. A lot of the crew were also vegan, and they would try some of the stuff, and it was really, really good. So I definitely got lucky there. I'm just impressed. I know that, you know, in speaking to uh, other actors who, you know, eat a plant-based diet, they, they have not always been that lucky uh, to have that vegan catering there, oh. um, you know, and, and just oh. the great lengths that they go to to make sure that uh, they have what they need. I mean, shoot, not an actress, but uh, but a figure skater, Megan Duhamel, a uh, Canadian figure skater at the Olympics last year. I was talking to her beforehand. She had a crate of food shipped over ahead of time. Because she knew that in the village, plant-based options would be so scarce. Isn't that isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like among athletes, that it would be so difficult to find plant-based options. Well, you know, I think if you're an athlete, especially, you really got to make sure that you're getting the correct nutrition, and you got to be very particular. So you just can't take a chance on stuff like that. So. Yeah, bringing stuff from home or having it brought to you, just making sure that you have what you need ahead of time. It's always a good idea. Speaking of athletes, um, you got a chance to screen the upcoming documentary, The Game Changers, and that's something that yeah. I think is really going to turn uh, the athletic world uh, on its head and really open up uh, a lot of eyes. And, you know, selfishly, we're all excited here at the Physicians Committee because you know, our own Dr. Loomis is, is featured in this, but you saw this and it, it really kind of struck you, didn't it? I'm going to be honest with you, man. This was one of the best documentary, if not the best documentary that I have ever seen. It's especially when you approach the topic of veganism, a lot of people tend to turn off unless they know a little bit about it or they have some connection already to it. And this got people from the audience who weren't previously vegan to seriously consider trying out. And it made so much sense. And it, as far as attention spans go in this day and age, 2019, uh, people's attention spans can be fairly low, especially my demographic. And I, I was interested. I was locked on on the edge of my seat the entire time. So as far as writing goes, making sure that they get, me they get the right messaging across and they keep that interest and they don't, I'm going on and on, but basically, it's really well done. I hope you guys can see it soon. I don't know when it's coming out, but I pray that it's soon because it is one of the best documentaries and incredibly good thing for the vegan community. And so you think that this will also speak to, to your generation because clearly they're going to be casting a wide net. They're oh, going yeah. to be you know, looking at you know, college and older, but you clearly, you're of the high school age. And your demographic is certainly that, and, and skews younger. And, and you think that really, you know, kids as young as you and, and maybe down to 12, when you first learned about plant-based diet, this is something that's going to appeal to all of them, right? Yeah. The hardest thing about my age demographic is our attention span. And <laughs> this movie does a really, really good job of keeping it interesting for every single second. So if it comes across, if they see it, I think they will definitely get a lot out of it. I, I think it'll do well. 
Well, let me let me pivot here. I want to ask you uh, about your own health here and how you felt that a plant-based diet has impacted that. I mean, you were 12 when you first adopted this. So, I mean, were you able to tell a difference even at that age as far as like how your body was well, feeling? I'd say like immediately in the first week, you get a huge boost of energy. You just feel better. You feel lighter on your feet and it, it gives you a lot of courage to keep going and you know, it inspires you to continue, and now it's been going on so long that it just feels normal, but that first week is very heavenly. You get these, like, highs of energy and happiness, and I don't know. It makes you feel... You are what you eat, so I'm glad that, uh, yeah, the first week of veganism is very fun. <laughs> if you're doing it right, you can have a lot of fun. You get very energized. Do you have any uh, anybody that you've encountered that's kind of been skeptical about the plant-based diet, or is everybody pretty receptive? Well, you know, you're always going to have skepticism. I think the best way to approach it is non-confrontational. I do know a few vegan friends who, you know, they go out with some of their peers who aren't vegan. They're kind of like staring you down as you eat the plate. And I don't think you want to make – I don't – I try not to put people through like a guilt trip. I try and make it comfortable and that way they're more open-minded sure. to trying stuff. Sure. So I can take like a friend out to veggie grill one time and just say, Hey man, just try it. It's just, just meet me for lunch. It'll be fine. And if you approach it non-confrontational, if you don't judge them, they will try it out and they're, probably more than likely to say, you know what, this is actually really good. I didn't think it, this is really good. So for me, just, I, I don't, I try not to judge people. That's it. That's that's so important because whether it's veganism or if it's anything else, if you come at somebody really hardcore about something, they're going to shut you down immediately just on principle. I mean, that's going to be the natural reaction. So if you take your route, just inviting yeah. them out to lunch, letting them try it, experience it for themselves, they will be more inclined to you know think, hey, this isn't half bad. And you know, this is what the Game Changers movie actually gets right in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel confrontational. It really, it eases into the information. It doesn't feel like a quote-unquote vegan movie, you know, vegan information for vegans. This really feels like just, hey, this is an incredible diet. Here are all the benefits. Here are all the things that you don't get from a non-vegan diet. And, you know, try it out for a while. You'll see an immediate difference. And that plays really well. I mean, I saw an early cut. They're still recutting it and... I mean, last night they're recutting it. They're going to make it even better. But from the early footage that I've seen, they they hit it really hard. Really good. Let me. Uh, I'm let, excited. For it. As am I. I think that a lot of people are. You know, people that are plugged into this community have been hearing about this documentary for so long, and it's like it's going to be the day of days when that thing finally drops, man. Let me tell you. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's end with the fun one. I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier that sometimes you would make some beans and rice at home, but when you are home, do you spend yeah. a lot of time in the kitchen? You know, you, you pretty, you know, your way around it pretty well. I mean, I do my best. They don't really teach 
uh, cooking in schools anymore, so I kind of practice when I'm home, but, you know, can't go wrong with rice and beans. Right on. What uh, do, do you have a specialty? Is rice and beans the Aiden Gallagher special, or is there something else that, that you, you hit a home run on every time? No, that's, that's generally it. I do a pretty good stir-fry as well. And I made a lot of those up in Toronto. Cool. Now, now tell me about these these beans and rice because you, I mean, there are eighteen million kinds of beans and just as many varieties of rice, man. So, what type of beans and rice are we talking about? What type of spices? I think our listeners are going to want to know. Oh, okay. Well, I generally like kidney beans. Those are really good. I also, I mean, any. I think it's called basmati rice. And I'll cook it with two cardamom pods and a star anise. I kind of got the recipe from Gordon Ramsay. I'll watch his videos, and you see a lot of the different cooking techniques that can really improve your seasoning. So I just do that. and Eventually, I did enough that I refined it to the point where my parents are actually preferring that over ordering something out or just getting it so... I, I don't know. We do all right at home. That's all you can ask for is to do all right. Look, as long as you're, you're you're not as bad as my wife who can burn water. She's the only person in the world that I know that can burn water. You're, you're doing pretty good, man. How do you burn water? <laughs> You'd have to ask her, Aiden. That, you would have to ask that her. That's deep. <laughs> hey, man. Well, right. Look, uh, Aiden, thank you so much for your time, man. You are a mover and a shaker, and I know that when I was 15 years old, uh, the God's honest truth is I was just trying to come up with clever ways to skip school. Uh, I didn't see the light until uh, a, a much older age, and so my hat is off to you for doing everything that you're doing now and just taking control of everything at that age. Thank you very much for your time, man. I, I really look forward to keeping tabs on you. Well, it's been a pleasure. On the last show, we had on Harley Quinn Smith, and I'm telling you, like Harley Quinn, Aiden is another young up-and-comer in Hollywood that you're going to want to keep your eye on. Already, he is using his celebrity status and his platform to speak about causes that are near and dear to his heart. And I even told his mom, this is, this is the impression that he left on me, I even told his mom that I cannot wait to track his progress. I think it's going to be incredible to see where he is in the future because I'm predicting nothing but bright things ahead for that young man. Moving on, we're turning our attention now to a little device that is a game changer for the health industry. This is called Organ on a Chip, and it is about the size of a finger. And it can not only eliminate the need for animal testing and bringing new medicine to market, but it's also far more effective. Christy Sullivan is my guest. She is the vice president of research policy here at the Physicians Committee, and she is incredibly well-versed on these devices, how they work, and the effect that they're going to have, not just on us, but for how animals are used in labs. They're not going to be needed anymore. And so if it seems like these organs on a chip are too good to be true, if it seems like there's something ripped right out of a futuristic novel, they're not. This is real life, and it's only the beginning. Because experts say that they are going to greatly speed up 
the drug discovery process and should even help to bring the skyrocketing cost of medicine back down to Earth. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll here with you. Thanks for giving the show a download today. Always appreciate it. Always puts a smile on my face. You know what else would put a smile on my face? If you hit pause right now, stop what you're doing. Just hit pause and head on over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you got this audio from and you say, by goodness gracious, I like where this show's going. Let me go ahead and subscribe to that. That would be fantastic. And while you're there, a five-star rating would go a very long way. Just saying. Greatly appreciated. Costs you nothing, but does a whole heck of a lot of good. Now, today's show is a little bit different. We're taking a departure from our typical nutrition-related conversation, and instead, we're talking about some really cutting-edge science here. We're talking about something that is truly what many feel is the future of medicine. And to me, when I was approached with this concept, I said, man, this is really kind of sci-fi. But alas, in front of me, not only is our vice president of research policy here at the Physicians Committee, who knows a ton about this, uh, her name is Christy Sullivan, by the way, uh, but Christy has also brought with her this very real sci-fi looking chip that will potentially revolutionize medicine and greatly improve animal welfare, reduce the amount of animal testing that goes into the drug test process. So with that, we welcome to the program, Christy Sullivan. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Now, walk me through this, because when I was first told, hey, why don't you do a show on organs on chips? I was like, organs on, what are you, what are you talking about? Are you talking about church organs? Like, what organ are you talking about? And do a little bit of research, and the my mind just exploded. <laughs> yes. So walk us through exactly what this is. Well, we're talking about human organs, um, not a full-sized human organ like a human heart, but uh, a very, very tiny human organ it could be a set of lung cells, heart cells, brain cells, blood vessel cells. So any organ or system in the body that we would like to model in order to try to find a cure for a disease that afflicts that organ, you can create what they're calling organs on chips. Now, the technical term is microphysiological systems. That's uh -huh. what the scientists use. Um, but they're very small, mostly uh, encased in sort of a silicone type material. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the time, they're about the size of, you know, half of your finger. A couple of them are larger, but most of the time they're very small. Yeah, the one in your hand is like the size of, I would say, maybe a, a battery, a double A battery, something mm -hmm. like that. Yep. Yep. And there are channels. So this particular one is used to create a lung on a chip model. Hmm. And it's made by Emulate, which is a company in Boston that spun off of Harvard's Wies Institute. Right. And what they do is uh, on one channel, you can pipe air through this small channel. The other channel, you can pipe blood or fluid to mimic blood. 
And then you have uh, an area where human lung cells would be seated onto this little platform. Just to either side of those human lung cells are vacuum chambers. And so they pump air in and out of those vacuum chambers, and that creates the motion of breathing. If you think about it, if you take a breath in and out, the cells in your lungs expand and contract right. every minute you take a breath. And so by adding that activity to this model, on a lung on a chip model, it gets the cells to act very much like they do in a human. Mm-hmm. Well, let's... Well, we're going to go into the science behind all of this in in much greater detail in just a minute. Um, I will describe this briefly here uh, as it it is a clear-looking battery-shaped device um, with a pink wire running through it and a blue wire running through it and then two very small air passageways that would replicate um, the air going in and out of lungs. Um, We'll put up a picture to that on pcrm.org slash podcast. Now, let's talk about why this is important. You know, it sounds very cool. It sounds very high tech and everybody loves that kind of stuff. But why is this so important, particularly for animals who are so involved in animal or, or the drug test process? Because as of right now, Aren't animals used in the vast majority of of drug testing before that stuff comes to market? Well, people might not realize that for every drug that is even submitted as an application to the Food and Drug Administration to be put onto the market, tens of thousands of animals are killed in different kinds of toxicity tests. Mm. You and uh, animals like mice and rats, uh, but also dogs, rabbits, and monkeys are all typically used for each drug application. Mm. These animals experience quite a lot of pain and suffering as they're going through these tests. They are forced to either ingest or inhale the potential therapies, and they're also made sick in order to try to quote-unquote model the disease uh, that the, the, the treatment is meant to cure. So the animals are always killed at the end of these tests, and um, they suffer quite a bit when they're, they're being sickened by the, the disease or by the, the drug that they're being given. So, for example, if somebody is testing a drug for HIV, that animal would be infected with HIV before the actual testing could proceed. Right. Wow. Okay. Um, And you mentioned that all of the animals are killed, and and that's regardless of the outcome of said test, even even if the test show, you know, positive results – Quote unquote. That's right, because what they're also looking at is what happens to an animal's internal organs. They're looking for potential side effects. You know, every drug has side effects, and most of the time those side effects are either detected during clinical trials, but they're also detected during these animal studies as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. What kind of conditions typically are these animals kept under during these tests? 
they're certainly not the conditions that uh, they would like to be in. Um, of course, monkeys love to be in the jungle. Right. Um, but they're put into very small cages in uh, large rooms with lots of cages kind of stacked on top of each other. And it's a very scary place to be, I, I would imagine, um, for animals because they're hearing all of their other, other animal uh, friends um, going through the tests that they're going through. And uh, for mice and, and rats and dogs, it's a very similar situation. They're kept in very small cages. Um, they may get exercise occasionally, uh, but that's not always allowed. And uh, their lives are very short, actually. They, uh, most of the time, dogs that are used in these tests are young. They're beagles, and they're anywhere from six to nine months old. And they would undergo these tests, and then they would be killed in order to you know, see what has happened to them. This seems to be the norm for testing. I mean, this is kind of what we have come to expect when it comes to bringing drugs to market, traditionally speaking, correct? Right. How effective is this method? You also may be surprised, or our listeners might be surprised, to know that it's not actually very effective. Why is that? Well, um, animals are different than people. They are not just smaller humans. Uh, they have, because of evolution and because of the way each uh, of our species has, um, has come to be, we all have different biological and um, uh, physiological processes right. that are, are, are just simply very different. Um, one good example is that often uh, rats are used in, to, to, in inhalation experiments, so you're testing a drug that's going to be inhaled or a chemical that's going to be inhaled. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever looked at a, a rat, they have a long nose, and all of that know that nasal cavity is um, something that humans just don't have. And so when, when a drug goes into that nasal cavity, it's going to react very differently, and the animal is going to experience different toxicity than a human would. Rats also are obligate nose breathers, which means they have to breathe through their nose. We can breathe through our nose or our mouth. So it's just not the same as, as as us humans, and we know that animals metabolize drugs very differently than humans do, and that's often one of the major problems that we see in clinical trials is the the process of drug development is that a drug is given to animals to to assess potential toxicity mm -hmm. and then it uh, is moved on to sort of phase one clinical trials and then phase two and three. And that moment when you when a, a, a new drug is given to a f cl clinical trial participant is always very, very uncertain because you don't know whether something that appeared safe in animals is going to have an unforeseen toxicity in uh, in people, right? 
And in fact, this is what we find. You hear every once in a while uh, clinical trials stopped because either the drug wasn't effective or patients were sickened or died in clinical trials. And that's a tragedy that we can prevent. So let me ask you this. I mean, we're talking about a failure rate after if a medicine was to pass that animal testing phase and move on to uh, human clinical trials, the failure rate as I see it here, somewhere between 90 and 95%, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, why then continue to use that method when it's so ineffective? I mean, you're talking about at most an 8% you know, success rate going through. I mean, why keep going with that method? Is it just because that's what's available? That's what we know at this point? It's um, some of some of that. Yes, it's um, mostly I think uh, that the Food and Drug Administration is very conservative. They have built uh, decades uh, in, into their process of assessing drugs in this way. And um, it's, it's hard to get them to think differently uh, about this. And um, there's just simply a lot of investment that has gone into this business of animal testing as well. You have lots of companies that make money doing this testing for drug companies. Well, let's let's talk about the cost there a little bit. How much does it take to um, develop an average drug? What is the average cost of bringing one to market? It's about $2 billion to be frank. It's, it's very expensive. And... Um, what we find is that drug companies are clamoring for new methods and new ways of doing this because they're spending so much money to get to clinical trials and then the drug fails and then they've invested all this money that's put to waste. So um, the public is also investing this money, of course. The NIH is investing money in disease research that um, you know, I think sometimes we see news articles that say, oh, there's a new cure found for a certain type of disease. And we never hear the follow-up to see, well, did that actually turn into a treatment, mm. an effective treatment? Right. And most of the time it doesn't. Two billion with a B, as in 400 million more than the Mega Millions lottery that <laughs> just happened. Uh, I mean, that that is a staggering amount of money per drug mm -hmm. per drug mm -hmm. and then you think about how many drugs are out there that is buku dollars buku dollars well and you of course every time you see a new drug that's come to market the new this newest cancer treatment or whatever that's very promising um and people can't afford it mm -hmm. or their insurance company can't pay for it or you know it's it's a big problem yeah, uh, I, I will say. Um, gee, man, I mean, you lost me. And, and it takes like a decade or so, right, mm -hmm. for each for each drug as well. That's a long time and that's a lot of money. How would this organ on a chip speed up that process? Do you know, has, have there been any studies on that as far as, you know, uh, maybe um, speeding up how quickly something could be brought to market or even reducing the cost there? Because that $2 billion, that's an astronomical number. Well, what's really exciting about the small size of the organs on chips is that um, 
there you you're able to do many more experiments much more quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the you know the lifespan of an animal and all the tens of thousands of animals you're you still can only do a certain number of experiments but if you have the small chip you only need a few human cells um you can have many of them and they can do something called high throughput testing which simply means faster testing mm-hmm. more uh, high throughput um so you you also need a smaller amount of potential treatment. So sometimes if the drug is, is the experimental drug is expensive to create, a lot of these initial early studies you can do with these human organs on chips and really get a sense of their potential promise or toxicity um, much sooner than you're looking at an expensive clinical trial. So we're looking at if between 92 and 95% of <clears throat> all medicines that have passed the animal testing phase move on to clinical trials in humans. Are we looking at a much higher rate of success if the testing process begins then with this chip? That's what we're hoping. Right. Um, so we've invested quite a bit now in developing different kinds of organs on chips. The lung on a chip was one of the first organs on chips to be developed. And one of the early experiments they did, which you can see in a very cool scientific video, is you they, they put bacteria into the air chamber, which mm-hmm. if, if you get a bacterial infection in your lung, that's, that's what would happen. Right. And immune cells from the blood part of the chamber actually wiggled through the membrane and captured the bacteria, just like what happens in a person. No. Yeah. It's very cool to see, actually. So they've also created now a um, lung tumor on a chip. So they've taken this basic model and then put cancer cells on it to see how those cancer cells behave in the human lung and how potential treatments can slow their growth. Um, One other very interesting case was that they were able to detect, uh, they were seeing a side effect from a certain pharmaceutical that was already on the market in a certain number of patients. Mm -hmm. And the This had never been seen in any animal tests, but they were able to see the side effect of edema or lung, um, water in the lung tissue, fluid in the lung tissue, um, caused by this, and and figure out why this drug was doing this, and um, were able to be able to predict which patients would have this side effect. Wow. So that's really promising stuff. That is. And and this would completely negate the need, um, and I'm going to put that in quotes here, the need for animal testing. It would take all of that off of the table. That's the idea. Okay. Yep. That's fantastic. Um, let's talk about the funding on this. So we talked about 10 years, $2 billion to bring a drug to market. Very expensive process. This organ on a chip seems to be... Uh, as you're explaining, much more effective, theoretically. Um, 
is it being funded? Like, where is that money going right now? Because the I think you were telling me before we started rolling that NIH, the National Institute of Health, is involved in this somehow, but they get billions of dollars every year. How much of that is actually going toward researching this? Well, it's a small amount of their total budget. Okay. So I... I, it's very promising because they are every year putting more and more money into funding grants for these types of models. Mm-hmm. But um, so in 2012, NIH and DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is part of the the Defense Department, right? They put 70 million into a five-year project. So that's pretty good for these human-based methods. That's more investment than we've seen in the past. Um, NIH is also working with uh, an agency on tissue chips in space, Mm -hmm. which is very cool to see how space affects our cells. So zero, just checking the effect of zero gravity, basically? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And some people might remember these very controversial uh, plans to put monkeys into rockets and shoot them into space or expose them to radiation as, as astronauts may experience in space. So this yeah. gives us a much more relevant and humane model to study. And then in, uh, so that first program ended in 2017. And then in 2018, they created the tissue chips for disease modeling and efficacy testing initiative. So this was specifically geared towards creating disease models that scientists typically use animals to create with these human tissue chips. Um, Disease models. Are we talking like specific diseases? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking about... Um, Parkinson's disease, uh, a model for diabetes or certain certain c- complications of diabetes, um, there, a, a brain on a chip for certain neurodegenerative diseases, flu infection. Uh, there's lots of really creative science going on and trying to figure out how we can use these models. And to give NIH credit, they are funding some of this work. So it's it's excellent. I would think that this too would show a lot of promise with something like uh, Alzheimer's. You mentioned Parkinson's, but I would think that Alzheimer's, that's, that's a big one. And we talk a yep. lot about that here at the Physicians Committee. No cure for that whatsoever. Here. Right. I would think that this very promising for the future of hopefully finding a cure for that disease. Um, Has there been anything that's been brought to market as a direct result of an organ on a chip yet? That's a tricky question because we know that pharmaceutical companies are using these models and mostly what they're doing right now is creating specific partnerships. So, uh, uh, you know, AstraZeneca, for example, will um, go to a chip maker and say, you know, we have this experiment we want to do and we think this organ on chip would be really good for it. And so so they kind of create the experiment together. Um, but for, as far as sort of using it in a, in a regular testing that would be submitted to FDA, we haven't seen that yet. We do know that the Food and Drug Administration is open 
two organs on chips. And in fact, they have a predictive toxicology roadmap that they just released last year. And that is meant to communicate to stakeholders, including drunk companies, that they want to be able to use information from these types of models. So, um, however, we have looked into um, new drug applications. Every once in a while, you can see what's been submitted. And we haven't seen any applications submitted using these models specifically um, yet, but we're we're still watching. And, And we do know that more than one drug company is using these models. Is it the FDA's position that they would like to reduce animal testing? Is that a stated goal of theirs? It is, yes, according to the roadmap, which is very new for for the agency, actually. That's that's phenomenal. Is there any sort of timetable that we're expecting as far as when we might see increased usage of this or when we're expecting to see drugs formally come to market as a direct result of these? Is there any sort of timetable or are we just operating in estimates here? Well, Francis Collins said something very interesting in front of Congress a couple of years ago. He said in five to seven years, we will see organs on chips replace animals for a large portion of our toxicity testing. Francis Collins is... uh, He is the director of the National Institutes of Health. That's a heavy hitter. Yes. I would think that that statement would carry quite a bit of weight. It does carry quite a bit of weight. And it's I think it's one of those examples of people trying to really push the envelope and say, we can do this. Um, we got to make changes. We have to do something better than what we're doing. And there is technology available. I don't think it's a given that that statement will come true. Right. It's going to take a lot of work. Right. And so NIH has started this investment. But as you said, they're still investing only a very small portion of their overall granting budget to these types of models. So what kind of work is the Physicians Committee doing as far as trying to champion this along? We have an initiative um, working to shift preclinical testing. Preclinical is usually what they call the animal testing portion of the drug development pipeline. Mm-hmm. So we are creating that initiative in order to work with stakeholders such as drug companies, um, the FDA, patient safety groups, and others to try to make changes not only scientific changes and funding changes, but also policy changes in order to make these methods um, more commonly used. One uh, initiative that we're really trying to move forward is to get FDA to change its regulations. Right now, there are hundreds of instances where their drug development regulations say, Um, in vivo, which means most of the time in an animal, Mm -hmm. or they'll come out and say a certain kind of animal 
or in animals. Right. And we'd like to neutralize that language to say simply preclinical. And that way that opens up the door to these human-based models to be used in preclinical testing. Simple language change go a long way, huh? Exactly. Interesting. Something else that's very timely that we're doing is tomorrow we're holding a roundtable on the use of human tissue in research and testing. Okay. So we'd like uh, – um, obviously, if we increase our use of these human organs on chips, then uh, we need – lots of human tissue to create the models. And um, right now, they're created with donor human tissue. So someone has a surgery and there's um, a leftover skin cells or lung cells or someone passes away and donates their, their body to science. That's where we would be able to obtain that those cells in order to create these organs on chips. Right. Well, uh, as we use them more and more, there's going to be more of a need for human tissue and scientifically high-quality human tissue. And so the roundtable is bringing together scientists and professionals who work with human tissue or who uh, um, what are called organ procurement organizations that Mm – gather donated organs to try to create standards and policies and even potential education campaigns to make sure that there's um, more human tissue available for these types of models. All right. Well, Christy, I would like to think that I do have high-quality human tissue available. I think you do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So um, if I were interested in donating, and I assume obviously you can do live living donations. I don't think that you have to uh, have passed on to to do this. I mean, if you are going in for a surgery, per se, is this something you can say to your surgeon? Say, hey, doc, you know, I want to take my excess skin cells or whatever cells. Let's kick these over here. Is that something that we can do? Sometimes. It depends very much on the hospital where you're having your surgery or your physician. That's part of our initiative is to try to make these connections between the physicians and surgeons who are interacting with patients and the scientists who need that tissue. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes those connections are made, but sometimes they're not yet. And so we need to, to do more in that respect. Somebody's listening to this and they're like, man, that sounds awesome. I'd like to get involved. How can they? Not just donating tissue, obviously, but, you know, maybe give a financial contribution, something like that. How can they get involved? Well, um, you could support the Physicians Committee's work. Uh, we are scientists and policymakers out there working with the FDA and scientists to try to make these changes. And we're also advocating at the NIH to get them to do more funding. You can also contact your congressmen and women and ensure that they know that you support NIH funding this type of research. I think that that's important. Um, And obviously, as we talked about at the beginning of the segment, the cost of healthcare being what it is, the cost of current testing methods being what they are, as this advances, as we start to bring those 
costs of bringing a drug to market down, I would hope sincerely then that that savings is then passed along to the home consumer. Exactly. That's uh, that's a whole lot of good. That's good <laughs> for sure for us. That's great for the animals. Phenomenal for the bank account. I'm not really seeing much of a downside here, and I'm I'm being objective here, and I'm not being biased. I'm not seeing a downside to this. There there are good things happening all around, um, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot of advances in the next three to five years. It's going to be a very different situation in medical research. Well, Christy Sullivan, the Vice President of Research Policy here at the Physicians Committee, thank you for coming on. This has been a really interesting and fun segment. We haven't done anything like this yet on the show. This is new territory for us. This is new territory for science in the medical industry. I'm just as, you know, pleased as punch about what just happened here for the last half hour. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Isn't that amazing? I'm telling you, you have to check out this device, okay? I've tweeted a picture of it from at Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's Carroll with two R's, two L's, the WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. Tweeted out a picture of this organ on a chip from at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And we've also put up a link to the article on the heart on a chip testing that I was referencing earlier on the show. We put up a link to that on pcrm.org slash podcast. Now, the researchers believe that one device, just one of these devices, will show the effect of hundreds of new drugs on actual human cells before they enter clinical trials. Hundreds, thereby greatly cutting down the amount of time that it takes to bring life-saving medication to market and eliminate the need for animals in the testing phase. My book? That's a win-win all the way around. Big show next week. The Super Bowl is upon us, and I'm going to be traveling to Nashville, Tennessee, to catch up with Chef Charity Morgan before the big game. So who is Chef Charity Morgan? Well, she is the wife of Derek Morgan of the Tennessee Titans, a team that narrowly missed the NFL playoffs this year. Boo. I know, I know. It was sad. Right, It was the final game of the season. Final game of the season, really close game, and they just missed it. Just missed it. But the reason that I wanted to talk with Chef Charity Morgan, well, she and her husband have convinced about a dozen Titans players to adopt a plant-based diet. Yeah, how about that? Turn those frowns upside down. In addition to her own career as a chef, she's spending a great deal of time as the de facto plant-based chef for the team. She's whipping up meals for the guys who are looking to take their game to the next level by eliminating meat and dairy from their diet. And Derek has been so active in speaking with them about how the plant-based diet cuts down on his recovery time following games. And, and in my time as an NFL reporter myself, I've seen players take a week or longer to recover after a single game, especially as the season drags on. But those players on a plant-based diet will tell you that they've been able to cut it down to a day or two, cut that recovery time down, way down, after getting banged up on Sundays. By the middle of the week, they're ready to go again. It's amazing how that happens. Amazing. 
Plus, I'm pretty sure that Chef Charity, she's going to have a delicious Super Bowl party recipe or two that she's going to want to share. You can make that then for your big party for next Sunday. I mean, she she is a chef after all, right? Hmm. Got, gotta bring something to the table if you're a chef. Come on, Charity. Come through for us. Before we go, if you have not already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee. It is available for free wherever podcasts are available. We're talking Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google, whichever. It's all right there. If you could go ahead and subscribe, and especially on Apple Podcasts, if you could leave a five-star rating and a nice review... I would really, really appreciate it. I would consider it a personal favor. And if you haven't already done so as well, social media time at PCRM on Twitter at Physicians Committee on Instagram and at Chuck Carroll WLC for both. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll. Keep it plant-based and thank you for listening. <laughs>